Hi, everybody. This is Michael Kithcart. Welcome to the Champions of Risk podcast, where we examine the many aspects of risk so we can all face uncertainty with more strength and courage together. I love hearing stories and case studies of business owners who have created an opportunity out of necessity this year. They have all been able to point to other moments in time where they had to make big decisions during a hard time in their past, but now they're faced with it again. And today's guest is no different. Her story is also a great case study for unique ways in bringing seemingly unconnected experiences and knowledge together to create great opportunities. So today's guest is Tammy Lee. She is the CEO and founder of Xena Therapies, which makes Opal Cool and Onyx Cool devices. She took her passion of empowering and helping women to create the Opal products that help women with menopause, MS, or migraines. And that's not all. It also helps nursing moms and female athletes. So the products are really for all stages of life, but especially when you're going through certain transitions in life. And then Onyx Cool is a medical device that provides optimal cooling for pain relief, injury repair, and recovery from service uh, from surgery. Excuse me. And all those products are made in the USA. So we are about to engage in a lively conversation. Tammy, welcome to the Champions of Risk podcast. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me today. Uh, yes, I'm looking forward to this conversation. And because first and foremost, uh, my understanding is you grew up in a very, very small town in rural Minnesota. And so how does a girl from small town Minnesota end up working for some of the largest airlines and then pivoting <laughs> to run bio and med tech companies? Well, thanks for asking that. I think, you know, when you grow up in a small town, a lot of people end up staying in a small town. But from the time I was in fourth grade, I had dreams of of, uh, of leaving the nest and wanting to get out to Washington, D.C., which I did earlier in my career as a journalist. And the story of being a journalist kind of connects to how I ended up where I am today. But yeah, Kensington is a very small town. There are 34 in my graduating class. So you know everyone and they know everything about you. Um, but I had a passion for learning new things, uh, very curious, I think, which is a, a common trait of entrepreneurs. Uh, you want to bust out into the big, bold world and, and try new ideas and, and see what will work in the marketplace. Absolutely. I can, I can see that. So what, what was it about your time in Washington, D.C. specifically? Because that's such a, especially in today's climate, and I'm not getting uh, political, but, you know, it's almost like a whole different world out there. How does some of what you learned about Washington or in that time of your life carry forward with you yet today? Yeah, well, I was out in Washington, D.C. in the late 90s and then early 2000s. And I went out there uh, at the start of my career working in TV news. And I got to cover the Clinton White House and Capitol Hill as a journalist, which was a really fun place to be. And then ended up working in the Washington Bureau for Fox News, which was a very different kind of experience. Um, my politics were actually very straight down the middle. In the middle of my uh, kind of story, you'll see that I actually ran for Congress as an independent. So my politics are very uh, centrist. Fox News is, is not sort of that brand of politics. So I didn't work for Fox for very long. But what I learned about what Fox was trying to do, everybody's trying to tell a story and they're trying to tell it in their way. And I think those are the kinds of uh, skills that you carry through your life and into big companies like big airlines, big hospitality companies, or when you're doing a capital raise, it's that ability to tell a story in a compelling way 
that will attract people to your side. So Fox attracts people in one way. Um, while working for Fox, I met U.S. Senator Byron Dorgan from North Dakota. I interviewed him actually at the Democratic National Convention. I know you've got some North Dakota ties as well. So you probably I do. Byron Dorgan. Everybody I do. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember him. So I crossed from telling news stories to, you know, a broader audience to telling the story of what one elected official was trying to accomplish as his press secretary. So I just transitioned from one side of the camera to the other. But the common thread through all of my experiences has been the ability to tell a story and get a message into the marketplace, which is what you do when you're coaching salespeople, right? You're helping them tell a story of the products and why they're differentiated and why they're better. And that's what you coach them to do. I'm, I'm no different. I'm just the person that was being coached, I guess, or, or telling the story from the sidelines. Okay. So I love how simple you make that sound and like e easy and stuff. And yet um, as an entrepreneur and lots of the, the people listening to the podcast are entrepreneurs and telling your own story is one of the hardest things to do, I think. Um, so what would you say to, to those, because you have such this great history of being able to tell stories effectively, what are the keys to doing that? Well, it's, uh, it's being really clear and concise. It's what you learn in journalism school. It's what you tell your clients when you're coaching them about how they're getting their message out into the marketplace. It's just being clear and concise and, and trying to tell the story of what's better about your product or better about you if you're selling yourself. When you're coaching somebody, you're effectively teaching them how to sell themselves, right? And tell their own story. So the clearer you can be and the more compelling you can be, um, the better. I mean, nobody wants to hear you drone on and on and on about everything since fourth grade in Kensington, Minnesota. But there's some certain high points and mile markers along the way that are directional that people say, oh, okay, now that makes sense. So I think you have to just pick out a few of those mile markers along the way that are going to be sort of the guideposts of your own personal story. That makes sense. Well, and part of what you were sharing with us just a little bit earlier, and I, I don't want to gloss over it, is that you actually ran for office. Mm -hmm. And so tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, that's, a, that's really a, a difficult thing to do. So whether you are a Democrat or a Republican or an independent, what I find about almost everybody, whether you agree with them politically or not, they're really passionate about their ideas. And so their ideas come from a place of what they believe is good and the right way to do it. But we have some intense disagreements right now in the country. And I think it's because not everybody views um, people that are running for office the way I just said it, that everybody's coming from their own place of goodness. We might not agree, but that's because it's become really personal and really nasty. We're in a climate that I've never seen before. The first presidential debate, you would never see candidates going after each other like that. And a sitting president of the country, you know, mocking another candidate or groups of people. So we're just in really different, unprecedented times, as everybody keeps saying. But running for office, especially as an independent, which is what I was doing, meant I didn't have a backbone of support from an organized party like the DFL or Democrats in the state or Republican Party. So you're really going your own way trying to tell that message. So you either need two things, one of two things, actually both. You need a compelling message, you need a lot of cash. And as an independent, it's very difficult to raise cash, but making those hard, I'll call them sales calls as the candidate when you're raising money for yourself, you are selling yourself every time you get on the phone to try and raise money or you're at the doors uh, meeting new people that could be uh, voters and supporters of yours. You're telling your story and trying to win them over. No different than 
when you're raising capital for a company like Recombinetics or trying to sell a product. So it's that, again, that same sort of line uh, that, that goes through my whole story, the ability to tell a story and try and win people over with that message. I was effective, but I, I was not successful in winning as an independent, which is a very difficult thing to do. But I ran such a, I think, compelling race. It got a lot of attention that I ended up basically tying with the same percentage of votes as the Republican in this district, which is really hard to do for an independent, but it's definitely a democratic district. And I think the way that you run a campaign, whether you win or lose, it's kind of how you run the race. The way that I ran that race, I think, uh, put me in the spotlight in a positive way because it wasn't nasty. It wasn't attacking. It was sort of, uh, you know, a, a, there were a lot of tongue in cheek things that I was doing. It was, I was trying to be fun and bring people on because they were excited about it. The way that I ran that, I think, is why I got the job at, at Northwest Airlines. Even though I lost the campaign, two weeks after the election, I met with the CEO of Northwest at that time, Doug Steenland, and he didn't have a job at that moment, but he had seen the campaign, I think must have been impressed with it. And then, you know, six or seven months later, I ended up as the VP of communications at Northwest. I wouldn't have been there if I had run the if I had won my campaign. I'd be in Washington, D.C., so... Even sometimes losing ends up winning in a different way that you never anticipated. Yeah. And so now that opportunity kind of helped you get back into some of the journalism practices, leading communications mm -hmm. for the airline while they were going through a really big merger. Yeah. So I landed at Northwest Airlines and it was that. So I was running corporate communications, which was telling the external story of the airline to stakeholders media, being the spokesperson. But it was a really interesting time, too, because we were in the merger talks with Delta Airlines. So telling the story not only to the media, but to regulators and people at the U.S. Department of Justice who would have to approve the merger. So being able to tell a story to different audiences and having the same story points go through, you might be highlighting certain features to one audience versus the other, but your story still has to be consistent and has to be the same. But the end goal was getting the merger approved. I love how, I think it was Steve Jobs who said, like, you can only connect the dots once they've been laid, you know, only when you're looking back at them. And just to be able to see, like, how each one of your experiences up to that moment landed you this perfect job that you probably wouldn't have even had the opportunity to have if you hadn't run for office. You That's know? exactly like, right. Yeah, uh, some people think about, and I had worked in the airline industry before when I, when I left uh, working for Senator Dorgan, I worked on a campaign back here and then ended up working for Sun Country Airlines during their Chapter 11 restructuring. So if Skip Humphrey had won his campaign for governor, I wouldn't have ended up at Sun Country Airlines. If Sun Country hadn't, you know, 9-11, the tragedy of 9-11 when that happened, Sun Country was the first airline to go into bankruptcy. If I hadn't been there for that experience, I wouldn't have been recruited to U.S. Airways, a back out in Washington, D.C. to be part of their Chapter 11 restructuring. And I don't know that I would have gotten that job if I hadn't worked in Washington, D.C. for a U.S. Senator who happened to be on the Senate Aviation Subcommittee. So all of these sort of random, you know, circumstances in my career ended up all just kind of being building blocks to the bigger story. Yeah, that is great. You did mention this, the 
challenge in running as an independent, let alone just running for office, period, which just sounds really, really hard, especially right now. Um, <laughs> but just that need to, you needed a story and you needed lots mm -hmm. of cash. And right. <laughs> so then you move into different industries and biotech, right? And med tech. And now you're raising a whole lot of money. I'm, I'm right. guessing more than what your campaign raised. Way more. Yes. If I had had $34 million in my campaign, you'd be calling me Congresswoman Lee, <laughs> but <laughs> I not have 34 million in my campaign. So now I'm just Tammy Lee, you know, CEO of Xenotherapies. And yes. Okay. But, uh, you know, raising capital is something that, you know, as companies begin to scale, they really have to consider um, some of the different outlets and the, the possibilities to, to gain that capital. So what would you say were, you hadn't done that beforehand. Um, so what would you say are some of the keys to raising capital, especially in the tens of millions of dollars? Yeah, so I hadn't done it to the scale of uh, meeting with private equity firms or wealthy individuals like I was meeting with at Recombinetics, but I had been raising money when I ran for Congress. So I knew how to make the ask. I knew how to tell my story. And then when I went to the University of Minnesota after the Northwest Delta merger, I was their VP of transformational giving. So I was talking to the wealthiest uh, donors to the University of Minnesota and telling the story about the great things to invest in or give your money to at the U. So I had been very comfortable with pitching big ideas and asking in the ask, asking for the money at the end of the meeting. So once you get into the rhythm of telling the story and then executing the ask, it's no different than if I'm Tammy Lee for Congress or working for the University of Minnesota or Tammy Lee CEO of Recombinetics trying to raise 34 million. It's all, it's all the same sort of template of, give them a really compelling story, tell them why it matters to them, and then ask them to invest. How is risk measured in raising capital? Yeah, so, you know, it depends on the type of investor. A strategic investor is looking at alignment with their stated priorities. So at Recombinetics, we were talking to animal agriculture companies, animal genetics companies, for um, some of the other divisions of Recombinetics that were focused on stem cell therapy. We were talking to hospital systems, or pharmaceutical companies. So risk is measured by alignment and uh, your appetite for what you think the upside is. So with a company like Recombinetics, they um, have a technology that's really transformative, but it's probably a couple years away from commercialization. So there are gonna be some milestones along the way. So then the private equity or venture capital firm is looking at how quickly are they gonna be able to exit they want to know when your strategy is to exit. So when you're going to go public or when they're going to be able to get their money out or what are your milestones along the way? So they're measuring risk against the milestones and at what point in time they can pull their money out. So as you know, private equity firms want to chop it up and make it something new as fast as they can. Private equity firms uh, probably have a little longer horizon, you know, a four to six year. And then there are some family funds and foundations that are looking at a 20 year horizon and even one fund in Europe that has a hundred year time horizon. So they manage risk very, very differently, but it's always at the axis of time and return on capital. So after you left, this isn't the only time. I mean, now, now you're kind of in the habit of raising capital. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I might have to get back in that habit again, given COVID. Um, I 
raise capital for this company. I, I invested my own resources and secured the financing. But, but I think as people think about how to survive COVID, you can think about, am I going to just try and skinny down just to survive? Or am I going to double down to thrive? And I think uh, as I'm looking ahead at the risk reward payoff, I think it's riskier to try and stay small and just kind of limp along than it is to come up with another big, bold idea, put a couple of really great companies together and raise some capital around that. Because there is, despite the fact that we are in the midst of a pandemic, there's still money on the sidelines right now. There's still people that are looking for really good ideas and investable opportunities. And I think when you've raised the capital once, it gets a lot easier. It's kind of like, it's, I mean, it's hard every time, but you, it gives you so much more confidence knowing that you've done it. Just like when you coach people in sales, once they've landed their first big account, now they've got all of this sort of momentum behind them and they feel they're ready to go charging into the next account. Right. You have evidence then, you know, mm-hmm. that, that it's possible and that you can do it. Uh, so yeah. And you're just kind of like are building that muscle. Mm-hmm. Tell us, I, because you were doing this and for other companies and then you decided to launch Xenotherapies. Mm-hmm. So tell us what made you do that and what's really at the core of, cause now this is your baby. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And I've got two babies. I've got a girl and a boy. Uh, Onyx is more the <laughs> athletic focused and there's certainly plenty of girl athletes too. So don't get me wrong there, but that's really focused on orthopedics and surgeons and, um, you know, injury repair, whereas Opal is all about speaking to her. It's cool products for hot women. And we're not supposed to have favorites, but Opal's by far my favorite because I love being in the women's health space. So I think it was a combination of love, loving being in uh, med tech, but also just the age that I'm in, you know, late forties, entering that age of where women are really concerned about their health care. They're going through menopause, they may have other conditions, everything's kind of falling apart. What was, you know, what was tight is now loose and what was firm is now safe. So speaking to her in a way that is like, okay, we're all going through the sisters. And so I felt really confident launching these products because it wasn't inventing something new. It was taking a concept that already existed. And that's really the, the investment thesis behind Xena Ventures or Xena Therapies. We take existing technologies into new markets, so they've been proven, but they probably haven't been able to commercialize the right way. And again, tell the right story to the marketplace. So that's why I ended up launching it on my own, because I, I love the technology, it was proven, and I wanted a shot at trying to build it on my own. Plus, at the last company, I had 468 investors on the cap table. Now I've got one. It's much easier with one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ooh. 468 voices. That's a lot. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Was your intention when you started Xenotherapies to have both Opal and Onyx be direct to consumer products? Uh, No, Um, they both are direct to consumer, but I would say Onyx has uh, also will have a very strong presence in the B2B space as hospitals and surgery centers open back up. Today, we just got another reorder from uh, a hospital system out on the East Coast, and they ordered two cases of shoulders, which sounds funny because it's like shoulder wraps. We just call it by the body part. So they're just starting to open back up and doing more of the on-demand surgeries that they weren't doing before. So I think as those systems open back up, we still want to have a presence in that space. 
And I still want to sell, for example, the Opal products. I want to sell those through OBGYN groups and chiropractic clinics and hospital systems as well. So it will always be a blend of the two. But I think at the end of the day, both businesses will be 70 to 80% consumer direct with 20 to 30% B2B. Okay. And how much did COVID influence that? About 99% because we could not get into clinics and hospital systems, which at the beginning of the launch, when I launched in February, we were going to go back to customers that were already buying cold therapy products for their surgery centers. When COVID hit in March, you could not get in anywhere. They were all shut down. So you can't get in with any new products that they hadn't already been purchasing. So that meant we had to pivot out of just pure necessity to an almost all consumer direct strategy right now. Okay. And I think that there are lots of listeners on the podcast that can benefit from the products. So I want them to be able to uh, have justice here. And so will you share what both the Opal product lines are and the Onyx? Sure. And the products should just describe them a little bit. Um, They're cool therapy products and they utilize phase change material. And your viewers on the podcast won't be able to see what the products look like unless they go online. But they are, they cool to either 58 or 80 degrees and they're safer than ice. So with ice, as you know, like if you have an injury, an injured shoulder or knee or ankle, you have to cycle bags of ice on and off every 15 minutes because of the risk to your tissue damage with ice burn, frostbite. With these products, you can wear them safely for an unlimited amounts of time, typically 45 to 60 minutes, put them back in the refrigerator, take them back out, wear them again. So the Onyx products, and that website is onyxcool.com, the Onyx products, the knee, the shoulder, the back hip device, they're really designed for athletes or athletic active lifestyles. So a surgeon might prescribe it to you after you've had a hip surgery or a knee surgery, or they'll probably just give you a card and say, hey, order this before your surgery so that when you go home, you're ready to go with the cool therapy product. The Opal products are really focused around women's health. They use the exact same technology, this phase change material, which is a clear liquid that becomes like a white sort of ice in, in its chilled state. And we make these products for women who are going through menopause. And the science behind it, we, this has been clinically tested. We did a study with women who were going through menopause. About 75% of the women had a 70% reduction in hot flashes after four weeks of wearing them. So it's really effective. And what both brands have in common, non-invasive, non-pharmacological, so drug-free therapy. And as you know, Michael, women, as we get a little older and we're going through menopause, a lot of women have to have hormone replacement therapy because the hot flashes are just so debilitating. That, that's okay if that's your only option. Some women do acupuncture, some take supplements. This is another kind of tool in the toolkit that's non-invasive. It's much less risky than hormone replacement therapy. In fact, there's no risk using the products. So the idea was providing some cool relief as well as some medical benefits from the products. And that brand is opalcool.com. So we have Opal, which is the women's health line and Onyx, which is the, the line for uh, active lifestyles. Okay, and that you can, I've, I've seen on the website too, like for lower back pain or injury, mm-hmm. you're getting, getting ready to launch Onyx on QVC? Yeah, we actually uh, have an order from QVC. We'll actually be on right after the new year for the new year, new you, um, as everybody's doing their new year resolutions. And 
you know, they might not be in the shape that you were hoping to be in. So people tend to get injured when they get back to the gym because they're so excited about being back in the gym again. So we're going to have our, our Onyx Cool shoulder products featured on QVC in January. Okay. So can you give us a glimpse into what it's like to sell on QVC, even though you haven't done it yet? Have you had enough preliminary conversations yet where you can pull back the curtain? Yeah, well, I have never done it before. And with COVID, it'll be really interesting because typically they have somebody from the brand, in this case, it would be me, on the air with the host or hostess talking about the product. They've been doing a lot of these remotely. So you can't be in studio together, which it must be a much more challenging way to sell on QVC because it's all visual, right? You got to be able to tell your story. So whether I'm in the QVC studios or in my dining room, I'll be demoing the shoulder product and talking about all the benefits and you get eight to 10 minutes and they give you, um, you know, a dollar amount that you have to hit a number of products that you have to try and sell or you don't get invited back. So back to the very beginning of the story, Michael, it's all about selling no matter what you're doing. If you're sitting in the CEO seat or running for Congress or raising money for somebody else, every day we're selling. We're selling ourselves, our brand, our products, and hoping people are buying. (laughs) If they they don't want to buy what you're selling, well, then you probably should, you know, pack up and go home. That will be very interesting. It'll be interesting to hear what the outcome is of uh, of that QVC time. Uh, You've led companies. Uh, You've been in, you know, executive positions and other companies as well. And now you have your own. How would you describe your leadership style? In every case, whether I've been in the main seat, the CEO seat or the number two seat, for the past 15 years, I've been in the senior leadership team. Leadership is a team sport. Whether you're CEO, whether you're number one position or number two, it's I have a very collaborative style. I think I, I understand clearly what my my strengths and weaknesses are. I ended up running a, a genetics, a gene editing company, and I hadn't had, I was a political science major, not a science major. I hadn't had a science class since 10th grade biology. And at Concordia, I got away with environmental studies as my science credit. So I know what I didn't have in that case. So I had people around me in the other senior leadership roles that had deep expertise in commercializing products that were coming out of a lab that understood the science very clearly. And when I would go out to raise capital, you know, you have to find your yin and yang too. And so collaboration is really key. And also just being honest and filling in the blanks. That's, that's I think, probably the hallmark of my leadership style. I know that I'm, I, I don't check every box, but I, I can check enough boxes, um, uh, I think, to be in the right place and tell the right story. And then I fill in with the right people around me. Yeah, that's great. I love the piece, too, about having your last time you were, you took a biology class was in 10th grade. And so for, for those out there who, you know, think, oh, I don't have the education. I don't have the background. I don't have the knowledge. That's not what the position necessarily is calling for, right? You can have the experts around you and, and be able to bring to the table the other pieces that others don't have. Yeah. And I think my strong suit is I have an MBA and I've been part of a lot of different corporate restructurings. And that's how I ended up at Recombinetics, not because of my, I had the right background in gene editing, but because I've been part of a lot of restructurings and could get the right people into the right jobs, clean up a lot of mess that might need to be cleaned up, um, and then get the story ready, get the company ready to tell a compelling story and raise capital. And because I was doing all that and running the day-to-day, I ended up in the CEO role. And 
the most important job of the CEO is to raise the money. And that goes back to what I had done at the University of Minnesota or running for Congress. And then having somebody next to me that had that deep science and commercialization background just was a perfect counterbalance to what my skills were. On a scale of one to 10 with one being low and 10 being high, how much of a risk taker would you say you are? (laughs) 11. (laughs) How does that show up for you, Tammy? (laughs) It shows up in some of the insane decisions I make, like deciding to run for Congress as an independent, having never held public office before. I think probably a glaring weakness I have is just incredible, unabated optimism. So I always believe that all things are possible, even when they aren't. So I'm definitely on a a risk taker at a scale of 10, for sure. Most of the time it's worked out. It's always worked out one way or another, maybe not the way I thought it would. As I said, losing the campaign opened the other door. Being part of chapter 11 restructuring teams, which people think, oh my God, that must be horrible. It's, it's learning that skill to be able to build better companies because you've learned from the mistakes that others have made. And hopefully you put that all into practice in whether it's somebody else's company or now my own company, the lessons that I've learned along the way. Even being a risk taker on a scale of one to 10 as a 10 or an 11, boy, I don't know if I knew COVID was coming. I don't know if I would have jumped off the cliff in February, but here I am. We landed a, a spot on Good Morning America, our Opal products were on, featured on Good Morning America. So in the midst of a pandemic, we still were able to find some bright you know, rays of sunshine. We found some rainbows in the midst of the hurricane. So we've been able to find a way to make it through. And I think if you are an entrepreneur and you are a risk taker, you have to have that ability to continue to persist I've got this tattoo on my wrist, which is in Chinese, and it says persist. At least what they told, they told me that's what it says. But uh, it's never giving up. The only way over is through. So you just keep trying to run down a, a different pathway until you can get to where you're going. Yes, that and that optimism is definitely needed. And I agree with you too. And you and I were talking before we started recording the the podcast is there is always so much opportunity when there is the upheaval and disruption that we are going through right now. And so even though you launched uh, Xenotherapies right right before COVID (laughs) kicked off, where are the opportunities that you are seeing now? Like what's the game plan? Yeah, so I think it's uh, go big or go home. I think there's a lot of pathways forward and a lot of companies will not make it through the pandemic and that's sad. And you can try and shrink your way to survive, but I think the only way to thrive is to go big and that means finding other commercial opportunities. It might be acquiring other companies that need help and resources. It might be taking on other products under the Xenotherapies umbrella or trying to roll our products up under somebody else's umbrella. So I think it's looking at what's going to be the right partnering strategy. So the only way to to make this work is to grow. And either we grow by acquisition or we get acquired and end up helping somebody else grow. I really believe that the only way to survive COVID is to find a new way to commercialize and really grow, take advantage of these, I would say, uh, you know, the marketplace is looking for good ideas and a lot of people are struggling So how do we help companies come together to have a story that's one plus one equals four versus all of us trying to do it on our own? 
go big or go home. I also want to just touch on real quickly that, uh, you know, I know that you are really big about empowering girls and women, and that is near and dear to your heart. And so um, I believe that you started up a fund or an organization. So tell us a little bit more about that, because I'm all about the empowerment. Yeah, well, I can see that and I hear it in what you say, Michael. Um, so Opal 51 is really the, the charitable arm of the Opal products. And the Opal 51 is about supporting the 51% of the planet, which are women. Um, so that's where that gets its name. So this month, for example, it's both Breast Cancer Awareness Month and Menopause Awareness Month. So if you go to the Susan G. Komen Minnesota homepage, you'll see Opal on their homepage talking about we, for the month of October, giving 20% of all Opal Cool Wrap sales to Susan G. Komen Foundation and their breast cancer survivors. So women who go through breast cancer often get in uh, chemo-induced menopause um, and hot flashes. So uh, after surviving cancer, they now have menopause and, you know, a double whammy. So the Cool Wraps are a great drug-free alternative for those women. So for the month of October, we're giving 20% of our sales to Susan G. Komen. Things like that are really important to, to me, to who I am and my beliefs. And we also today, before I got on the podcast with you, had a call with the National MS Society and our products have been approved for, for their clients as well. And so for right. people that, are, are, that have MS, you know, we give 25% off the MSRP. We, we always do a discount to these charitable partnerships. So for Susan G. Komen, people that buy through their site get 20% off and I donate 20% to Susan G. Komen. So finding ways to leverage a product and a brand that can really provide help for people's health with also putting you know, cash in the hands of the organizations that need it most to help people do their mission. Emily, yet another example of your great leadership. I really appreciate you taking time uh, to be on the podcast today and sharing a little bit of your story. It's very inspiring. And so if people are looking to connect with you or find and follow you, what are the best places to do that? Yeah, so our, our social handles are at Opal Cool Therapy or at Onyx Cool Therapy. And the websites are opalcool.com and onyxcool.com. And I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn too. Thank you for me the opportunity to talk about our products in, in this conversation today. I really enjoyed it, Michael. And thanks for all you're doing to help other people share their stories for the world and, and help their businesses grow. Uh, well, thank you, Tammy. We do have that in alignment. Love the stories of others. So thank you. And hey, all you out there, uh, are you operating at the level that you want to be? You know, incorporating even one daily habit of to support your mind, your health, as we were just talking about, and output can raise your overall satisfaction in life. It is true. It is proven. So I took the themes of what the world's highest performers do consistently to excel, and I compiled it in one easy to read document for you called the best of daily rituals. It's all yours. It's all for free. And there are over 20 different rituals that you can choose from. So just select one or two that you can put into practice over the next 30 days and, and see what happens. You can find the download in today's show notes, or you can go to michaelwkithcart.com backslash rituals. Mm -hmm.